but whatever you did, I'm sure you'll never do it again. Two weeks in a row. Uh, I have the privilege of bringing to you God's word. Uh, you have the opportunity to get some more rest and to sleep. Uh, to uh, thank you for uh, the kind words that Tim had mentioned. Um, and it is certainly good to have Pastor Charlie back with us. And it's, uh, I'm sure I can speak for Tim, it is our privilege and honor as elders to assist you in any way that we can, fill in the pulpit or in any other capacity uh, as you continue to recover and make sure that you get back to health as you do. So continue to pray for Pastor Charlie. Uh, but it is, uh, as I as I joke, I, uh, I'm very thankful for the privilege it is to bring the Word of God to you, uh, and particularly in the fashion in which the last couple of weeks have made that possible. Last Sunday, you may recall, as we were looking at Psalm 73, we were talking about just how good we are sure that God is to his people. So much that the psalmist said, but as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord my God, my refuge. The psalmist was very secure and was very thankful for who God is and to what in the, in the ways that he had shown himself to be faithful. Today, in Psalm 139, while Tim was very clear about the fact that it is a very comforting psalm, we look at it in the context completely different. Uh, we look at it in a way that is very relevant to the world in which we live today, a world which has in so many different ways shown just how far away from our creator we have become is, is mankind in our sin since the fall. To think about how God has been patient and merciful, long suffering in the ways we as Human beings have taken the task that we were given in the beginning and has not but once flushed it all the way through a flood and has for some 4,000 years or so has put up with what we as human beings in our sin have done with life that he has blessed us with. We live in a world in which mankind has completely lost its sense of dependability on God. The connectivity to God is nothing valuable to mankind in general today in our sin. Now, mankind has throughout the ages, sought knowledge and has sought truth and has sought purpose for living, but has overwhelmingly done so in a way that has ignored God and in many ways have been completely against God, trying to erase God. We're so consumed with science and we ignore the God who knows all about us. If you just look at just different areas of science in the world today, if you, th if you consider physical science, when we consider the material uh, parts of the universe that God has created, 
such a vast universe that we have, even particularly this time of year, when you consider if you have a garden like we've planted uh, and you put things in the ground and you have an anticipation that there's actually going to be fruit that comes from what you planted in the ground, not because of anything that you did, just because that's the way life happens. God has designed it that way. When you when you look at all the facets of this material world and you see the beauty of it, you see the, the greenery that is replacing all of the deadness from winter throughout the spring season, at least when all of the pollen washes away, and then you can see the, the greenness uh, and maybe the, the cleanness of your windows or whatever has been clouded. But the life that comes about just in the physical world, and what have we done with it? We have... We've taken this wonderful creation, even in its fallen nature, the beauty of it all, the, the just incredible detail of it all. And what have we done? We've taken assumptions that it all was created from nothing, from a, just a big bang. That it's all evolving somehow. What foolishness. Consider the biological sciences. Tim was talking about the birth of a child and, and, and to think about all the intricacies of life that are displayed in just one small human being. We think about all the ways in which we have learned over the years and particularly in recent years where we can study things that we, we just could never see before. And we can understand in so many different ways how the body works, how life continues to uh, cells continue to reproduce themselves and, and how life continues to progress on. But what have we done with that? We've gotten to the point where we even reject that as a principle of life in the fact that we reject what DNA tells us. That we can't even trust what gender we are anymore because, well, that's just not the way we live. That's not the world in which we live anymore. We, we've grown so much beyond that. What foolishness. Social sciences in which we try to study mankind and try to understand how we, uh, over the history of mankind, have related to one another and, and where the problems have occurred and, and how we can sort of avoid certain problems if we could just learn from history. But even that we mess it up because we'll bring in different types of solutions, things like critical theory, which in recent years has, has become a way to divide different racial groups or cultural groups into certain ways where we look for an equal outcome of people instead of looking at how God has invested his blessings in different ways and in different capacities, in different opportunities to people so that they could flourish in his wisdom. But no, we've got to do it our way. We've got to split things up our way and we've got to be divisive and we've got to set one party against another party. What foolishness. This is what we have to show for our pursuit of knowledge and, and wisdom. This is what we have to show for our pursuits apart from God. And what a empty, unfulfilling experience it has been in that regard. But thankfully, thankfully, we have Psalm 139 to remind us of some very important truths. We're reminded that while mankind is in his futile efforts to find meaning to life in his own knowledge, 
that there is a God who knows us. Let's begin reading in Psalm 139, verse 1. The psalmist says, and we are directed to believe that this psalmist is David, the king of Israel, says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways, even before there's a word on my tongue. Behold, O Lord, you know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before, and you laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain it. The psalm introduces a God who knows our activities. A God who knows our thoughts. A God who knows even before we speak a word what we are going to say. And he knows it from every angle, beside us, in front of us, behind us. As the ESV puts it, he hems us in. We can't get away from the fact that he knows us. And, and, the, and the language that the psalmist uses here, this poetic language, is not to suggest that God began it point zero and said, you know what, I'm going to go down to the library and I'm going to start studying up on mankind. I'm going to search and I'm going to, I'm going to find out something about mankind. But no, the result is already there as if he did. For, the, for God searches and knows us and, and he knows everything about us when we get up in the morning. He knows about our days when we go to bed. He's acquainted with all of our ways. All of our words. Oh, Lord, you know it all together. You know it all. Now, as a believer, we have to sort of, let's set that knowledge aside for a second, because as believers, we've grown to know that that's a wonderful thing, that, that God knows us. But at the same time, we know it's a fearful thing. And the psalmist is reflecting the heart of someone of anxiety. I think the Andy Griffith show has provided a few illustrations at Cornerstone Baptist Church over the years, so I, I think I'll use another one. Uh, thank you, Pastor. I, I, I want to do so with your permission only. But there was an episode on the Andy Griffith show where there was a stranger who came into town. And somehow he knew everybody's name, even though nobody knew who he was. He knew babies' names and how to tell identical twins apart. He knew how long it had been since the hotel room had been painted. Uh, he, he knew uh, who owned this and he knew who lived there and who was related to whomever. And if you're familiar with this episode, you may recall with, with humor about how upset everybody got. How does he know who we are? Who is this strange person who knows all about us? Is he an alien? Is he from the supernatural? How does he know all about us? It makes us uneasy when people come up to us and they know something about us that we didn't disclose to them. Now, I'm used to going around work, and, of course, there's not a lot of people 
in our office now. But when we had people in our office, once I got used to the, you know, the whole comment, hey, Mark, I, somebody was telling me, you're, you used to be a preacher. You used to be a pastor of a church. Now, the first few times that was like, well, who did you talk to? Because I want to make sure, you know. But after a point, you get to the point, you get, you're just used to it. You're familiar with it. But if someone was to come up to you and talk to you about something that you did that you thought no one else was around looking. I, I know that we're all Christians here and we, we all, you know, we, we, we never do anything that we wouldn't be afraid for anybody else to see. Our life is an open book, right? We're all transparent. We're all, don't, we don't have any secrets. But what if somebody came up to you and told you about a secret you never told anybody else? Now, let's bring back that knowledge even as a believer. How often are you bothered by the fact, you know what? God knows exactly what I'm thinking right now. God knew what I did last week. And he knew why I did it. And he knew to whom it was hurting. And to whom it was taking advantage of. He knew who I hurt. And he knew the ill will that I had when I... Does, does, do you ever think of that? The psalmist did. Because the psalmist said, I can't get away from it. He's got me hemmed in. <laughs> he knows everything that I've... He knew before I said it, what I was going to say. He knew what I was thinking when I got up out of bed today. He knew what I was thinking about when I went to bed last night. He, he knows my, my goings in and my goings out. There was a discovery of God's knowledge by the psalmist that created some anxiety. Which leads us into this next section of the psalm. Where he says in verse 7, where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? Now, think about it. Now, if someone was taking true comfort in the fact that the Lord knew them, why in the world would you be concerned about getting away from it? Why would you be asking questions? Oh, I'm so thankful that the Lord knows all about me. Now, where can I go and get away from it? You see, there's anxiety. There's nervousness, un unease that happens when we realize that there is someone who knows it all. If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in the grave or shield, you're there. If I take flight on American Airlines, I'm sorry, if I take wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness will cover me. I'll just turn the lights out. No one can see me in the dark. And the light about me, it's nighttime. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day. For darkness is as light with you. I can't 
get away. Now again, where is this screaming coming from? Where is this utterance that I can't find a place where I can escape God's knowledge coming from? Well, in my humble opinion, I think it's called the conscience. The conscience. In which we make value judgments as to what is right and wrong. And when we have an overwhelming sense of guilt in having participated or an awareness of or an involvement in wrong, we get anxious. There's guilt. There's unease. It's one thing for someone to see what we did on the stage where everybody knows about it. It was in the newspaper. People were talking about it down the street. People are reminding us about it through cards and letters. But when we're all alone, no one else is around. And you've got the freedom to do or to think or to obtain whatever it is that you want. He's there. And God, in creating you in his image, gave you a conscience that enables you to determine this isn't right or this is wrong. And without, I would, I would have loved to have read the whole book, The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul to you this morning to kind of remind you. Let me just sum it up this way. When we come in contact with a holy, righteous God who sees everything in our life we should shudder because we're not holy in ourselves. It should create anxiety. It should create discomfort because God never changes in his holiness. God never changes in his righteousness. God never changes in his standard. God never changes in his expectation for righteousness to be fulfilled in everything. He doesn't. He doesn't cut corners. He doesn't sweep under the rug. God is always holy. So even when we think we're going into the darkness, like Jesus said, men love darkness because their deeds, their works are evil. You can't get away. Adam and Eve couldn't get away. Genesis chapter 3 as soon as they'd sinned, what they do? They tried to make clothes, cover their nakedness up, and they hid themselves from God. And the very next thing that we hear, Adam, they thought they were hiding, but they weren't because they couldn't. So the psalmist not only have the discovery of God's knowledge, but you know what? There's finally just a concession to it. He concedes. 
God's presence is everywhere. I can't go any further. However, it starts to click for him in verse 13, where there's an amazement of God's power. Now, he, again, he's going straight from, for darkness is as light with you, for you, verse 13, formed in my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Interesting language. Now, God didn't plant us like a seed in the ground, in the dirt, and waited for us to spring up in the months after winter. But again, he's using poetic language in describing a picture in which what was God doing in the hidden places? Places that I would seek to run to because I don't want to be confronted with God's knowledge of who I am as a sinner. He immediately goes and says, now in the dark places, that's where God was what? He was making me. He was forming where, where, where no one else could see. There was a formation of a body here. My inward parts. Now again, keep in mind that this is at least 3,000 years or so before the ultrasound. You know that device that most statistics will show that once a mother sees her baby who is considering abortion through an ultrasound will change her mind because of what an ultrasound will show her. Oh, if we could only get some open eyes to see what God has already revealed, that my inward parts were created, they were formed by God. They were knitted. It was like crochet where God was putting together all the intricate parts of the human body in the mother's womb where no one else could see. It was hidden in the darkness. The psalmist says, I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. In the dark places, God was knitting. And when did he start? At the beginning. Conception. When there is an introduction of a distinct DNA. When there was a creation of a different body. Was it completely formed? No. But it was the soul? Absolutely. And God was knitting it and forming it in the secret places. The sanctity that life possesses is all found in the Creator who makes it. How dare we as a culture somehow think that this is a frivolous thing 
that we can somehow think it's a legal argument to say if it's okay to terminate a life that God is in the process of intricately making. To somehow think that our pursuits of a licentious lifestyle somehow oversee the divine purpose of life. May God have mercy. May God have mercy and grace on us. I was made in secret. This idea in the Hebrew gives us an idea of not just simply being unrevealed, hidden, but made distinct, separate, set apart, which each life is. Because we understand even from this passage that it's not just the sanctity of a body that is created, but the psalmist goes on to say, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me. When as yet there was none of them. So this same God who knows every word that proceeds out of my mouth, even before I speak it, has created a body for works that were written in a book before they were ever committed. So we can sing. No guilt in life. No fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's final cry, or from life's first cry, the final breath, Jesus has written it all in a book. <laughs> that doesn't rhyme. So they, they thankfully, the, the Gettys were nice to say, Jesus commands my destiny. You know how he does that? He wrote them in a book before they were even done. You want to question God's sovereignty? You want to question your destiny? You want to question the purpose of your life? They're already written down in a book by the one who made you. And he made you distinct from everyone else for a purpose. Are you amazed at that? How precious are your, or to me, are your thoughts, O oh God? How vast the sum of them. If I would count them, they're more than the sand. Now compare that with verse 6, where he says, Such knowledge is too wonderful to me, I cannot attain it. The knowledge that he knows that God knows everything. He repeats in very similar terms, if I could count everything that you're thinking about, God, it would be more than the sand. It's an amazement of a completely different nature. His understanding that God knew everything about him brought anxiety to his life to the point where he was like, is there anywhere I can go and get away from this? 
to now that he understands that God has created him with a purpose, with works that have already been written in a book before they were even done. Now he says, how great are your thoughts. There is a transformation in the psalmist's mind here that goes from understanding God who knows everything, including my sin. Now there's a God who has thought more than I could ever imagine about me because of the purpose and intent that he has given to my life. The world is missing a, a, a huge element in their pursuit for the purpose of life. It's called God, their creator, the sovereign, majestic ruler of all. Apart from him, there's no purpose. I don't care how much money Elon Musk has. I don't care how many laws the, the politician passes. I don't care how powerful the kings of the earth are. Apart from God, there is no purpose to their life that's meaningful apart from God. So all the things that we trust in, all the things that we hope that will influence all the decisions to make, even when I hear someone who says, you know what, we really don't need the Bible to argue you know, for you know, against abortion and be pro-life because you know, all that's going to do is it's going to lead us to God. Then we're going to have to prove that God exists. Are you insane? There is no better place to start for arguing about being pro-life than with God. There is no better place to argue for anything that is right from God. And anytime that you want to argue something apart from God and you're on your own, you're wasting your time. Either in your effort or in your motivation for arguing for something that's not that important. The psalmist was overwhelmed. And notice what he says that last part of verse 70. I awake. So he still hasn't lost this, this understanding of him being in the presence of God continually. I awake. There you are. I've been over here dreaming and thinking about how you have created me in such an intricate way and how you set me apart and distinguished me from all other people and you've given me a purpose and you've written down all the deeds of my life and I wake up and you're still there. Yes, he is. Isn't that great that God is still here? And God will always be here. So what, did that, what should that lead us to do? What, what, what are we encouraged to be like with all of this information? We, we, we go from, you know, being in our sin, trying to figure it out all ourselves, but we now understand that there's a God who knows all about us. <laughs> well, in, in just a little way, that kind of freaks us out because we don't want anybody knowing everything about us. But when we realize that that's the same God who created us with a, a sense of purpose and meaning and distinction from every other being to fulfill his purpose, what should that do for us? Well, I think we find it in the remaining verses in 19 and following. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, oh God. Whoa, where, where did that come from? We're talking about God knowing me. We're talking about God forming me. And now the next thing that comes out of my mouth, now would you just go ahead and slay the wicked? Now, let's be sure to understand the psalmist here isn't necessarily talking about that person who just cut him off in traffic. 
or the irritating coworker, or the nosy neighbor who thinks they know everything about you and probably know more than you think they do. But they don't near, know nearly as much as they think they know. But we're talking about the wicked. What is it that happens in a person's life that brings from, from the anxiety of knowing that there's a God who knows all about them, including the things that they would like to hide, and brings them through an understanding of knowing who they are, being a, a special creation of God, want to see the wicked slain. Well, I believe it has everything to do with the works that he ordained for us to do. We've been given a task to reach the world for Christ. As we were talking about in Tim, there were so many times in CGG this morning, I was like, dude, you're either doing a great preface for the sermon this morning or you're trying to preach my sermon. I don't know what you're doing, but it was, it was working out really good. Because when we think about the missionology of our church and, our, and the values that we have about as a church, we are seeking for the whole world to be glorified. Or being glorified, glorifying God, rather. And, and until that happens, that's our, that's our push. We're, we're going to keep working in missions until God is glorified everywhere by everybody. But right now, that's not the case, right? There are enemies to God. And our purpose for which he designed us for, those things which he has written for us before they were even done. We're reminded here, what, what's, what's the aim here? Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O oh God. O oh, men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O oh Lord? There you go. When I understand who I am in Christ, when I understand who I am as his creation, designed, born, matured for his purpose, my ultimate goal is to make much of Christ to the glory of God the Father through my words and through my actions. And to those who stand Against that, they're the enemy. Oh, but we're supposed to be loving and kind and gentle, and, and we're, we're supposed to get along with people. Well, you know, the Bible even says we should live with peace with people as much as possible. Yeah, I get it. But there are people who are taking God's name in vain in our world. Does that bother us? When somebody speaks about Jehovah, God, do we just, hmm? Or do we say, that, wait, whoa, 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 that, those, those are fighting words. You, you, you can't talk about God that way. When there are people who are malicious in their intent towards God's people, What's our reaction? Well, 
We just we we got to get along with everybody. You know, we we live in a democracy. We we we've got we can't we got to let everybody have freedom of speech, right? It's amazing how many Christians are jumping on this bandwagon of people who are promoting free speech, not understanding that the people who are doing most of that promoting of free speech, which trust me, is important. But most of the people who are promoting this free speech are people who hate God. Now, do they have a right in our country to express their views? I believe under the Constitution in which we live, yes, they've got the freedom to do that. But you know what? They're wrong, and they're evil, and they're wicked, and I pray that God will slay them like the psalmist. If they choose to remain obstinate towards God who is holy and righteous, I'm going to be on God's side on this one. Not in holy self-righteousness, trust me, because guess what? I profane the name of God. I'm, a, I'm malicious in my intent towards some people in life. There, there's wickedness in my own heart. So don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But we need to be sure to understand that if, when it comes to God, who is righteous, and when Romans chapter 1 tells us that the wrath of God is revealed against unrighteousness, my pity, my empathy cannot be so great that I'm like, well, God, that's not fair. These people really don't deserve it. I deserve it. But that doesn't change the fact that God is coming one day and it will be judged. There is a day of wrath coming for those who are apart from Christ. And we should be very thankful for that. We should be very appreciative to the fact that righteousness will win. That we should be even, even more thankful that grace wins even more in our life. There should be no lack of effort given to every man, woman, boy, and child learning about Jesus Christ and learning about the cross, learning about how what Jesus Christ did on that cross was sufficient to pay for the wrath of God because Jesus Christ himself took it. He bore our sins. We should make every effort that we can to every person who is breathing, regardless of their political nature, regarding of their nationality, regarding regardless of what they believe about God. We should be making every effort to inform them of the gospel truth that Jesus Christ saves. But not, but not at the expense of the holiness of God. 
and the deserving wrath that will fall upon those who are under it. Do we hate the world like the world hates God? Do we, do we hate them with complete hatred? Do we count our enemies? Do we look at it honestly? Perhaps that's the reason why it is so difficult for Christians to overcome sin. It's because that we're so quick to pacify those who are still in it. I don't know. But perhaps. Because we realize just what a great responsibility that is for us as recipients of God's grace. But, when we, but we, may we never misunderstand that God has called us to hate this world. We cannot love this world. We can't. If we love the world, then we, we don't love God. First John, chapter 2, verse 14. This world's passing away. Passing away because it's in sin. So we need to be committed to God's vindication. Not that God needs us to help him. Not that God needs us to, to validate him. Not that God needs us to give him a, a written order of commendation so that everybody in the world can say, hey, well, God is who he said is because, well, Mark gave him a certificate of approval. No. But I'm committed to the fact that God will win in the end. Now, verse 23 before we get overly competent here in our own knowledge of who we are. And Pastor, I'm like you. I've, I've prayed these verses so many times. But I've enjoyed, as I've studied this passage and have thought about it and considering the context in which we find these words. Search me, O oh God. Based on everything that we've just talked about in the first 22 verses, now, search me, O oh God, and know my heart. Now, do I need to ask God to do that? Do, do, do I need to give God permission to do that? Am I going to have God find something new now that I've asked him to search my heart? No. He knows it all. But as Tim, again, was talking about in CGG this morning, it's about a relationship. And I ask God, you know what, God, I want just open my heart and, and, and search my heart. Try me. And know my thoughts or my anxieties. Test me and, and, and know what I'm worried about. Don't let me stay anxious about you knowing everything about me. As a matter of fact, I want, you to, I, I want you to search my heart. I want you to know that I am open to, to your knowledge of who I am. I want you to, I want to let you know I'm comfortable with you knowing who I am so that you can try me and know what, I, what, what it is that I'm truly worried about. The word there actually, and if they're in, if they're in C, verse 24, if there be any 
grievous way. That's the, e, the ESV, the King James being a wicked way. The word can actually just be simply translated idle. See if there be any idols in my life. See if anything that's going to lead me to do something wicked. Anything that's in my life that's going to cause you to be grievous. That's what I want you to know. And I want you to show me. Based on who you are, based on what you already know about me, based on who you have created me to be, Lord, would you search my heart? Would you would you try me and, and know my anxiety? Would you see if there's anything that's tripping me up, anything that I'm going in the wrong direction, any idol in my life, any wicked way? And lead me. Lead me in the way everlasting. Lead me to a way that's going to produce righteousness in my life. Everlasting fruit. Everlasting joy. Everlasting presence with you. There's anxieties in the way. There's, there's idols in the way. Sh show me where they're at because I want to be who you know me to be and who you created me to be. I want to be an enemy of this world. I want to see your enemies destroyed. Help me know my heart so that I'm not in the way. Help me to know my heart so I'm going in the right direction. And do so by your gracious hand that's ever with me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I, I'm troubled that in my humanness, in my own self-effort, I'm troubled that I may be guilty of trying to persuade, persuade others in my own strength, in my wisdom. But I'm confident, Lord, that your spirit is much greater than even my mistakes. I'm grateful that your spirit is completely capable of taking a word that he has inspired and sowing it into the life of one whom he has changed by your grace. I'm confident in that. So, Father, I pray that the psalm that we just looked at will we'll find a place in our life that will bring comfort, that will bring correction if necessary, that will certainly bring teaching to our lives so that we can better understand who we are but more importantly, understand who you are. Father, help us today. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you, Lord, for this time. And I pray, Lord, that as we, even as we leave this place today, that we would be mindful that you are always here. 
and that that would bring comfort knowing that you will never leave us nor forsake us. Knowing that you will complete the work that you are actively working in our life today. And Lord, should there be someone who doesn't know, perhaps they're still anxious in their own sin. Perhaps the fact that there is a holy, righteous God who is completely aware of every secret, aware of every false move from every sin. Father, may your spirit come and, and not just convince them of their sin, but Lord, may they be comforted in knowing that Christ has sufficiently received the wrath of God so that they might be saved if they would repent and believe in his complete work on the cross and the power that raised him from the dead. May they experience new life as you work in their lives. Just, Lord, do what you will with your word. And may we praise you for what you do. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Pastor.